Good morning, comrades. You are listening to Good Morning Comrade. Uh, more information, goodmorningcomrade.com. You can listen to our show on Tuesdays on WHIV FM in New Orleans. Today, uh, we have the crew. We have Aaron and Robert. Oh, hi. It's us. It's all. And then we also have a very special guest, Rob Larson. Uh, Rob is a... Uh, what, you're, uh, you're a professor of political economy? Economics. Economics uh, at... Uh, and, and, and you're also the author of the book, most recently, Bit Tyrant, and also Capitalism versus Freedom. Yeah. Uh, so welcome to Good Morning Comrade. Rob, how are you? Thanks, guys. A pleasure to be here. Good morning. Good, yeah. Good morning. It's we're recording at seven o'clock at night. <laughs> five by five by you. You're coming from the West Coast. Um, and eight by us. By me. Yeah, we're in three different time zones like today. Because yeah. So um, I wanted to talk to you specifically about uh, your book, Capitalism versus Freedom, and specifically the sort of framing of the way that you know the this sort of like twisting up and wrapping up of the language of freedom in like the the economic system of capitalism and how that happened how that sort of operates in our lives and how we sort of like almost unconsciously make assumptions based off of 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 those kind of dynamics that currently exist um so i mean i guess you want to just talk about that a little bit just in a more in a general way and we can sort of drill down on things a little bit Oh, of course. Yeah. So yeah, language of freedom, you know, that's uh, what we're supposed to speak here in America. Uh, mm -hmm. When people talk about how we lag behind all the other developed wealthier countries like Europe and Japan mm -hmm. and Korea and stuff, because we don't have national health care and mm -hmm. we have tons of gun violence or we can't handle the response to a big disease outbreak like this. We bring these things up. People will often say, well, yeah, it's a less equal country, but we're more free. We have more freedom. And I don't want big government to come in and restrain my liberty by requiring gun licenses or administering uh, public health care or by having age of consent laws, all these terrible intrusions mm -hmm. on my freedom. And that is like the dominant political discourse in the U.S. I mean, certainly my experience and across the political parties, too. It's very much a you know, uh, bipartisan phenomenon. So that, since that's everyone's sort of political starting point. What I tried to do in capitalism versus freedom is just take a look at, you know, how we understand freedom and how it really relates to our market economy, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of the classic philosophical vision of freedom comes from figures uh, like Isaiah Berlin and some other philosophers who suggested this sort of really basic, uh, like broad division between two sorts of concepts uh, about freedom or liberty. And frankly, I only partially follow this, but it's a good starting point just mm -hmm. to give us, you know, uh, a basic vocabulary to discuss this issue. Of course, it's going to be contentious. But the basic idea is you have these two genres and there's negative and positive forms of freedom or liberty, right? And the most prominent one is negative freedom, right? That's the one that you'll see in like John Stuart Mill and other classic philosophers. The idea is with negative freedom, that's your freedom from being acted upon by someone else. So if someone says, give me your money or you have to do this, that's an intrusion on your negative freedom because it's some, you know, outside coercive authority acting mm -hmm. on you, telling you what to do, limiting your options. Mm -hmm. So that's one version of freedom, you know, and the idea is that, uh, you know, we can offset, we can put that next to positive freedom or more commonly positive rights. The idea of positive freedom, it's more about what you're free to do mm -hmm. with your liberty. So people sometimes say negative freedom is like your freedom from 
Like you're free from government telling you or others telling you what to do. Positive freedom is about your freedom to do different things. So Mm -hmm. if we say people should be, for example, free to consume some of the uh, large amount of medical services that our giant economy and our huge health sector are able to produce, like through a Medicare for all type policy mm-hmm. or something like that, that would be positive freedom, saying you have a you should have a freedom to use hospital services mm-hmm. if we're able to produce them as an economy and you're in need because you're sick or dying or mm-hmm. infected with COVID or whatever. And the idea is, this is sort of the basic picture here. The idea is that most people will tell you, well, capitalism provides negative freedom, but not positive. So you have negative freedom in a market economy because for all the reasons that you read in Milton Friedman and Tom Hayek or hear about, you know, on Glenn Beck or all your other uh, conservative hosts today, in market economies, you're free to choose. And you can decide what pair of pants you're going to buy. You can decide what kind of smartphone you're going to have. You can decide what career you might want to go into, you know, like major decisions that you are broadly as an individual free to pursue. On the other hand, most people would agree that markets don't provide positive freedom. Like you don't have a entitlement in the market economy to healthcare or an education or, you know, fire department services or anything else. Because in markets, you know, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. So you don't have like a freedom to do it. If you have the cash, then yes, you can have it, but there's no freedom there. And so conservatives say, And again, you can find this in all your right-wing classics. Conservatives will say that, well, negative freedom is what capitalism provides. And that's the good form of freedom. That's good. Because positive freedom is all entitlements and thinking you have a right to other people's labor or a right to what the economy produces, even Mm -hmm. if you didn't like work to earn the money to pay for it, you know? And conservatives will say, so capitalism, it's good to go. Liberals will say, well, we need some positive freedom. You should be able to call the cops if someone breaks in your house. You should be able perhaps to have a right to medical insurance if you're Mm -hmm. a more progressive Democrat today, like most of the party and its base are, for example. Mm -hmm. What my book argues is that this is all wrong. Capitalism doesn't provide really either of these forms of freedom. We all agree it doesn't provide positive freedom. Like that's, you know, we all agree on that. But I would argue that, you know, yeah, like it's free relative to like a dictatorship or something. But you can't really say that we have negative freedom when you look at the amount of power that you have in the biggest fortunes that you see in our billionaire families, and above all, in the gigantic monopolist or oligopolist, Mm -hmm. huge corporations and banking and tech platforms. To say these companies and entities don't have any power over us, I mean, people make this argument. You know, I debated Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute a couple months ago, and we (laughs) got into it, and he did not agree with anything I said. So people do disagree with this. But to me, that's just like a fatuous claim. Like Mm -hmm. Google and Facebook can decide what ideas and videos we see. You know, Mm -hmm. Exxon decides like in what form oil and energy will be delivered to us, you know, and Mm -hmm. all the other giant industrial corporations have these sort of uh, have these levels of influence. If you have if you're Michael Bloomberg and you have tens of billions of bucks, you can put your face and your stupid phony message on every YouTube video and every cable news show commercial break Mm -hmm. across America for months on end. And it still came to like a billion dollars, his presidential mm-hmm. campaign tag, which of course came to nothing. It was great seeing Sanders and Warren oh, humiliate him on nothing stage. Nothing made so me happier than watching wasted. him. No, nothing, would, nothing made me happier than watching him go down in flames. <laughs> you can always tell when powerful people aren't used to ever being criticized because they're surrounded by ass-kissing toadies all the time. Very common. So when suddenly someone insults them and goes, no, you're full of shit. They're... 
there's like a stunned feature to it. Yeah. So that's the argument the book makes is that realistically, neither of these forms of freedom are adequately provided under capitalism. And we should look at other alternatives like socialism. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what, what I really appreciate about the, uh, the entire framing of, I mean, it's in the title capitalism versus freedom as it, 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 it's an attempt to seize that narrative of freedom there it is. There's a copy of it. Uh, it's, a sent- it's an attempt to seize that narrative, a very, very good argument, in my view, at least, to to sort of like wrest that away and show in the ways in society that we're not we're, we're not free. We don't have freedom from the boss. Like this is a freedom from. I guess it would be a negative freedom, but you don't have freedom from your boss. You know, you don't have freedom from your landlord. You don't have freedom from if you want to talk about. Um, uh, Roosevelt, you don't have freedom from want, you don't have freedom from fear. You know, those are those are freedoms that um, uh, I, I think about the four freedoms a lot. And we've talked a little bit about that with Harvey Kay, uh, professor at uh, University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I don't know. What do you think in terms of uh, in terms of negative freedoms being freedom from like 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 bad or scary things? Well, that is the idea that you mm-hmm. want. It makes it, it makes sense. Like I'm mm-hmm. in favor of negative freedom. I think sure. everyone should be. Like if someone is controlling you or limiting your options or dictating to you what you can do, like that does restrain the perimeter of your free action. I mean, I think everyone can sort of see the logic there, mm-hmm. and that's why these conservative arguments do have some resonance. You know, mm-hmm. if the government tells you you have to pay taxes, you have to pay them, and if you don't, you can go to jail. <laughs> right. And governments can invade countries and occupy them. Like governments exert yeah, freedom great power from would be and nice. violate people's <laughs> negative freedom all the time. Yeah, that's fine. But it's just amazing how much conservatives and libertarian thinkers uh, refuse to recognize how this is present in the private sector. I mean, it's just kind of amazing. You know, Uh, if you when you let me tell you, when you debate libertarians, a great thing to ask them is, what is it inappropriate for a boss to tell a worker to do? Mm -hmm. Because they'll struggle to come up with something, because if you freely choose to work for someone, and in their imagination, you can always go work for other employers, which is often not the case. But let's put that aside for a moment. <laughs> They'll tell you like, well, you know, if your employer decides that you have to submit to a you know, rectal exam every day or you have to accept being sexually harassed by them as part of the terms of the job, market people will tell you that, well, if you are making that contract and freely accepting that, like that's a, you know, that, that should be allowed. All mm-hmm. these labor laws and regulations are just hurting our ability to be mm-hmm. productive and to sexually harass our staff members. Right. And to me, this is half of what the Me Too movement showed, you know, as an economist who's interested in these issues. I always thought that when people got promoted inside a corporate hierarchy or when they make a billion dollars from some, you know, publicly developed technology that they snuck a patent onto somehow. I always thought that people's main thought was like, oh, I'm rich and I'm going to waste my money on a bunch of goofy crap and eat physical gold on my food and buy a nude Caribbean island and just be excited about wealth and power. Turns out that's true. But the other thing that men think when they get rich is like, oh, now those sex, those sexy ladies in the type pool can't say no to me anymore. Yeah, that's exciting. So you power. the amount of authority mm-hmm. and just domination and power that people just accept as part of the private sector and they don't recognize that there's any kind of infringement on people's negative freedom there. It's kind of stunning to me. I don't know. Yeah. I have a, a, I got it, Aaron. So it's, I'm like listening and I'm, um, it's seeming like kind of a lot of these freedoms can be, I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, have negative and positive aspects. So like kind of a hybrid of the two, like I'm thinking specifically of like the war on drugs. So that's, you know, freedom from prosecution for using substances that you choose to put in your body, but then also the freedom to have access to marijuana, for instance, if you're, you know, 
ill. Um, and can I, and on I that just, point too, like like your boss, not only like they will test you for, uh, they will test you for drugs. You know, if you're trying to get a job for them or whatever, too. On that, that point you're doing too. in your free time, you're yeah. not even getting high on the clock necessarily. But yeah, that's an example of that too. But yeah, Aaron, I would totally agree with that. And I say this somewhere in the intro of the book where I kind of lay this stuff out. This is like philosophy. And, you know, God bless it. But to me, like philosophy is like this mushy area where words can be so incredibly easily turned around to mean they're opposite all the time. Like that's very common. You know, like, you know, like I was just talking with one of my Christian friends today and they always say the ultimate freedom is submission to God and accepting that God decides what happens in your life. And the real freedom is in letting go of that. And you're like, okay, well, you're free from having to like worry about what you should do or weigh decisions. But it also means like you're free in the sense that you're letting someone else make all your big decisions for you. Mm -hmm. So I would totally agree with this. Like I think about um, like free speech. It's another example of this. Like, well, I should have negative freedom, you know, because I don't want the government telling me what I can and can't say or Facebook telling me what I can and can't post on the Facebook platform. We always think of that as a positive freedom because it's something you are entitled to. You're entitled to have your opinion and speak it to people. So to me, like anything that involves philosophy like this, like it's important ideas. I'm not trying to trash philosophers at all. I have philosopher friends and colleagues who I love and respect. <laughs> to me, like I come out of this. Like, the thing is, I come out of the sciences and I'm your typical person with a science undergrad degree because I'm snooty about what, you know, how mushy other fields are and uh, how easily their ideas are turned around. So mm -hmm. I'm all too willing to accept what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just, I'm curious. The reason I even bring that up is just because I'm curious, like specifically thinking about speech and kind of the war on drugs is that you do tend to have more conservative. And, you know, I think the people who are hardcore libertarians are pretty anti-war on drugs, but a lot of conservatives who talk a lot about freedom and who have a very strong opinions, you know, are pretty pro drug laws. And then when you talk about speech, there's this, oh, my freedom of speech, my freedom of speech, unless somebody is saying, okay, well, you can't infringe on someone else's freedom of speech with prayer in school, or you can't force people to say certain things. Um, and I think a lot of conservatives tend to be pretty, um, pro like pro forcing certain types of speech. And so I'm just curious what the, like how much of that intersection of the positive and negative freedoms, if that means that you're going to have more conservatives, like on other ends of the spectrum and how that affects how the different kind of political philosophies view certain things, if like as inherent freedoms or not. Indeed. It, that's a very, again, like I think that does see a lot of the uh, issues involved here. Uh, conservatives, yeah, as much as they, you know, they talk about how much they love freedom of speech these days, it's completely opportunistic. You know, like conservatives control most of the national media. You know, Wall Street Journal is the biggest circulation newspaper. It's owned by Rupert Murdoch, who also owns Fox News, which as everyone knows is by far the highest rated cable news channel. You know, the talk radio ecosystem is utterly right-wing dominated from Ingram to Levin to, you know, <laughs> you don't have to get into that. Uh, so they're all about free speech there. But when they go on campus, some professors of literature have left-wing views and say, well, you must be censoring your students. Like you shouldn't be allowed to say all those terrible capitalism hating things to the students. And like you said, compelled speech is one of the right's most favorite 
causes. Like, I mean, what's a more classic conservative demand than that people have to say the Pledge of Allegiance? Uh-huh. You are required to say like a loyalty oath to some state, like, oh, such small government people, but swear an oath to our evil blood-soaked flag of killing <laughs> Filipinos and Iraqis and all this. So absolutely, what it comes down to, in my opinion, is you sort of um, look at these different examples in places where people of different political views see freedom as being violated and where it's not being violated or they're at least not concerned about it. And that really lets you see what their priorities are. When we look at conservatives broadly, I mean, I think, you know, it's a common view. I always think of Corey Robbins' great book, The Reactionary Mind, for this specific argument. But he said, if you look at most conservative, libertarian, reactionary opinion, it's mostly about defending traditional hierarchies of power and privilege within the society, whether it's a man telling his wife what to do or you know telling your kids what to do and hitting them if you feel like it maybe it's owning slaves maybe it's dictating to your employees and telling them what the dress code's going to be and making them do the fascistic walmart cheer or you're fired and you're back on the streets where you actually need to have food every day and your kids have to eat regularly to survive it comes out that their pattern of what they think is an issue or not issue with freedom somehow always comes back to defending the existing power or recently existing power hierarchies in the private or public or religious spheres, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's very reasonable. If you look at those patterns, you'll see that very clearly. And Robin actually just had a second edition of his book come out, which is updated through the current uh, crypto fascist regime. It's so good. People should uh, buy that book and read it. And just like as a kind of an example that's happening currently kind of like COVID, COVID style. Um, I, I, it's either in Houston or Dallas, but there is a, um, a, an office, um, Harrison, I think it's like an investment, um, where the, the boss is specifically telling employees that they can't wear masks to work. Um, that's also something that's happening on the government level in, um, Florida. And I can't remember exactly what, um, sheriff's department, but there is a sheriff in Ocala. Yeah. The freedom to communicate COVID to, to the you know, hapless victims of you know, arrest yeah. or whatever, and kind of they they went into more detail specifically about the the um the private sector guy um how he has you know seems to have broken many federal like many EEOC laws um not like asking people like where they go to church how often they go to church just very um you know never expressly firing someone because they're not Christian but it's made very clear that you will not last long in, in the position. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it's, it's just so interesting to me how often the word freedom gets kind of bandied around. And then when it's like, Hey, that you can't do that. They're like, well, that's my right to do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this idea that like my, every individual American has the right to do whatever they want to anybody at any time, unless it's, someone else doing it to me. Yeah. And what it means is coming back to, yeah, like the white majority, kind of the Christian majority in much of the country. And yeah, people who have like big capital empires to control, like kind of something similar to what you're saying. Um, Like just this week, the Times had a nice uh, article on evangelical Christians and why they stand by Trump, even though he's the most hilariously irreligious figure you could really imagine. And uh, they, you know, the, these guys are very open about it. They say, well, you know, we used to, when I was a kid, you know, you had to say a Christian prayer in school and now you don't. And so I send my kid to a religious private school to, to, uh, so we can make them do that. Like that. And, they, and they, they say specifically, it's about my religious freedom. And they say it like several times, a couple of like different Christian, you know, Christian person on the street being interviewed by these journalists. They say, we used to be able to put the 10 commandments in courts and we used to make kids say Christian prayers, not just some prayer, but like a Christian prayer to the Christian Christ of Christendom. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And now we can't do that. So my religious freedom has been abrogated. No, it hasn't, you jackass. You have your own home. You have your own church. Say your Christian-y stuff of whatever goofy denomination you are. You know, God bless it. Like, do it there. You, it's not right to force other people to do it. But when they're no longer able to, like in a lot of our secular public institutions today, give or take, they'll say, like, well, what about my freedom? to make kids do this. My freedom's been abrogated. So one of the first things, one of the big themes in uh, chapter one of my book, the one we sort of break all these ideas down and look at all these modern uh, instances is uh, what they call hegemonic freedom, where when your power is taken away from you, whatever kind of power you might have, people say, oh, my freedom is being abrogated. Well, not if it's your freedom to tell other people what to do. Like the slave owners, just to take a really clear example, Mm -hmm. like they said, like, this is how did the government come in and change? We we have freedom to have our traditional Southern ways down here of owning people and selling their children. And they're interfering with my freedom. Well, thing is, those people you're selling, they actually have rights to where you're deciding. So your, your freedom to control them is actually abrogating their freedom. It's actually power you're exerting over them, the most horrifying power you could have in that particular case. The same is true in this Christian example and lots of other as soon as people have some small reduction in their ability to totally control the people under them at work or in the family or whatever, they see it as a violation of their freedom, not realizing that they're just embarrassing themselves by raising the idea of freedom. Okay, it's an advancement of freedom. It's taking away your power, not your freedom. Like it's illegitimate freedom to be able to tell someone what to do mm-hmm. and control them like that. Yeah. So again, this is philosophy to me. Is immediately every term is the opposite. It's kind of frustrating. And it's like the question of like like your freedom to swing your fist ends at your like the other person's nose, right? Robert, you had something. I was gonna say. So how do you engage with these people? Because our the mind is the state of mind that they're in. Like when I listen to libertarians, like these people are supposed to be like learned masters. I can think of a couple and I'm just like, what are your arguments? I don't understand how you can have, how you can hold these arguments when we live in, we live in a, like our free market society, our free market um, society is based on agopolis and, um, and monopolies. Mm -hmm. So how, how, how can you say that any of this is, an actual free market where you have the ability to choose. Like you brought a good, you brought up a good point with like Google and Facebook and stuff like that. So are these people just like, are they, are they sincerely just hold, like Orwellian, like double think, like holding two views in their head or are they being dishonest and just trying to push their own? I can never parse out the two. Like, I don't know whether just to be angry or to be like sympathetic and be like, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I, I'm happy to speak to that. But of course, any individual person you're arguing with, you know, economics in your experience, you know, economics can't look into the heart. So any individual person, <laughs> you have to figure it out, you know, but uh, usually, I mean, my experience, like usually people are sincere, like just lying all the time. Like that's hard on people. You know, no one wants to think that they're a liar, you know, unless they're like hiding some giant crime. So they're willing to accept that. Usually people, it's so much easier to just, again, smush these ideas together until you decided that really you're the one defending freedom. Like, you know, these slaves need me to build them up in Christian positive morals. So I'm helping them. Like rationalizing is so much easier than accepting yeah. that you're lying. So my opinion, yeah, it's it's more Orwellian. It's more like discarding evidence that you might be willing to accept when you read it in the Wall Street Journal and you're not being challenged. But when it's in an adversarial setting, you'll just put it aside. So when you, you know, I've debated a number of libertarians myself and every time they will say, it's there's nothing stopping anyone from becoming a billionaire. If you're a penniless 
migrant fleeing Syria and you're trapped in a Turkish concentration camp, you're just as able to become a billionaire as the child of Jeff Bezos is. <laughs> and, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm exaggerating it, but you know, you could say those exact phrases to them and they'll go, yeah, well, you know, I mean, she could make a little business in that refugee camp and build that up. And next thing you know, they're Mike Bloomberg. What you discover is, this is something I said the last time I did a debate uh, for the David Pakman show, I guess it was, was I said like this confidence in that is a little bit more touching than convincing. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you know, you just, you just keep, you just keep on believing that there. Like if, if you're willing to accept that, then there is like nothing that you won't accept to maintain that belief, but it doesn't convince anybody, you know, like, like, you know, the president is a billionaire. Like who, who is going to claim that, that he earned that money somehow, that that clumsy fail son earned a billion dollars. It's because his father was a billionaire and now you are. Like, that's so interesting how that happens. Like, that's the realistic vision of it. But because you do have like positive, because you have a negative freedom under capitalism, no one's telling you what to do. You could figure out the one pathway that leads to you becoming, you know, Larry Ellison one day and buying an entire Hawaiian island as he did about 10 years ago. Uh, it's completely goofy. And the same is true with what you actually referred to there at the market level, you know, so trying to get into an industry, like trying to be the next Google or Amazon or something. You look at these companies. I mean, these companies are now trillion dollar companies. And the reason they're so unusually, especially large, like, you know, uh, Microsoft's worth 1.8 or 1.6 trillion, I think now. And uh, Google and Amazon and Apple are all north of that market value. Uh, They did it because they have platform economics. And that's the thing I focus on in my more recent book, Big tyrants, the political economy of Silicon Valley, the particular weird, every industry has its own unique, weird characteristics and markets based on communication and networks and sharing information tend to be prone to platforms where everyone's attracted Mm -hmm. to whatever hub everyone else is on. Like you're attracted by networks that already have a lot of adopters because you're trying to reach people Mm -hmm. with your YouTube video or Facebook post or or Facebook live that we're on right now. Indeed. You know, again, the first thing I say, the first page of the book, I say, let me tell you, I use all these companies' products constantly. The point is you can't avoid using mm-hmm. them because they're so, yeah, like monopolized yeah. or semi-monopolized. So when you never and stop posting, when you never stop posting. It's almost you... impossible to challenge these companies and claw market share away from them. And that came up in just that congressional hearing a couple weeks ago that the big tech CEOs were all at. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you could see Zuckerberg discussing how buying, you know, in his internal emails, uh, discussing how <laughs> buying Instagram will make it harder for new social media companies to break in. It's like a new moat around our existing castle that controls this market. Yeah. And you can tell libertarians this stuff until you're blue in the face. I know because I've done it myself. <laughs> and you know, you're in a debate, it's a public argument. People never are willing to climb down in arguments. Like that's rare. Uh, but the, you always say you're not debating to convince the person you're talking to. You're trying to convince all the other goofy people standing around going, oh, that's also a good argument. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the key. So to me, I'm never like, does he really believe this? Is he really that naive or Machiavellian? Like, ah, who gives a shit? Like, the interesting thing is to get all these other people into thinking about politics and being active and mm-hmm. joining DSA or supporting BLM or whatever it might be. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that this is something like, yes, it makes sense that, okay, well, like the data shows that we don't have free choice in a lot of these decisions, but there's a lot of emotional ties when it comes to kind of um, monopolies in this way. And there's like a couple. So like you think about, okay, like if you are, if we're having to admit that, you know, a kid who's born didn't learn how to read until they were 10, like 
if that person can't like scrabble up and become a billionaire, then we have to then look inward and to see how we're complicit with a system that keeps people down. And that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to do. And specifically, like when we're talking about Silicon Valley, like there's very little diversity. It's mostly white men, very, a few token women, um, you know, not a ton of racial diversity, definitely not a ton of class diversity. And so when we're talking about like, okay, well, the system, the system propped you up or, you know, however you want to say it, you, you have benefited greatly from your privilege. Well, that's basically like saying like, oh, I'm not the smartest boy in the room. Um, and I can't, my, my ego can't handle that. So you have that. And then, so you have that for like the people who are in charge of the companies, but then like, I'm specifically thinking about like Elon Musk fanboys and like Apple fan people. And like, cause people build up their personalities around like the idea that they made a choice to follow like something and that, oh my gosh, they're better and brighter and smarter and um, more on top of tech things because they like have all the up and coming things. And it's like, okay, but there's like seven things to choose from. And like, it, it's, it's, so it's this, it, like when you're talking about like, oh, Elon Musk, you know, built Tesla, like, like blood, sweat and tears and not like emeralds from his dad's apartheid era, South Africa, emerald mind, then you have to admit, like, am I fanboying like a terrible person? And it's like, yeah, you are. I just want to put that out there to anyone listening. You are doing that. But um, it sucks to have to recognize about yourself. That's like, a really good point, you know, because it, it's true. Like people do get really attached to these. And sometimes, yeah, it's like marginal. Like I just thought Elon Musk was an interesting figure. Oh, okay. I guess you're right. That's not a great thing. Like it depends how much people invest their egos in a political party yeah, or celebrity investor or whatever it is. That's totally true. People get so defensive about this, especially if they're like into politics or extremely online people who've made a lot of public stance. Like it's hard to like reverse yourself and you know, like publicly admit that you were wrong about something. It's one thing to quietly inwardly go, hmm, that opinion I've had without talking about it, maybe that's not right. But once it's, you know, once you've got a book with your name on it, arguing it, that's tough to shift people from that. So that's totally, totally true. But I would say like, that's like, I, I would agree with that. But still, like when you look at like today's, uh, you know, debate culture, such as it is, everything, everything is, yeah, I know everything <laughs> is based on an expectation of like having like a real, like legitimate reason or logic based argument. And so even if, yeah, you're just def defending some yeah, non-rational or just previous commitment that you've made, you don't want to climb down on everything is based, you know, like Ben Shapiro is in the imbeciles uh, phrase, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. It's a very reasonable point. It, it, it just, it argues against everything he says, but like it, it is the expectation. So I, I think what you're saying is, is totally right there, but just also to say everyone expects a real argument though. Like mm -hmm. any, any reference at all to feelings or sentiment immediately, everyone stops listening mm -hmm. um, for better or worse. It is the case. Oh, believe me, I'm a social worker. I'm like, well aware. Apparently <laughs> feelings are not real things and they don't affect and anybody who's who feels too deeply is overly emotional and can't be trusted. Yeah, you're on the front lines of assholes saying that what children want and what caretaker they want to remain with is immaterial to this question. That's I guess I don't have to tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think you answered my question. Um you really thoroughly answered my question there, Rob, because like the reason why I asked that, I think of there's a guy who's an economics professor. Um at Loyola up the street from us. And it's uh, Walter Block. 
and he and like this guy will know this guy knows more about economic theory you know or forgotten more about economic theory than i'll ever know i will concede that he's he's going to be a much smarter man than i am but like when you actually hear his arguments get broken down they're in like fantasy they're they're like coming from a crazy person it it's so out there the the whole idea of like how an actual libertarian economy would run that it makes me think i'm insane i'm like i must be crazy because he's 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 talking some like galaxy brain stuff and i think about like i'm listening to the old like debates of him and sam cedar where he's talking about i'll get my courts and you can get your courts and we'll meet in a what so it's like i guess what you're saying is right once you 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 put a a a a flag down and you've made your brand, you're not going to back away from it, no matter how crazy it starts to unravel. Yeah, totally. And you know, it's interesting. I should, you know, we should say somewhere in here, like, like any other political, you know, uh, like any other kind of broad political opinion, like liberalism or socialism, there's a variety of types of libertarianism. And some of them are much goofier than others and blocks definitely at the farther extreme of that. So like some of the guys I look at in the book, like the ones I make fun of in the title, are ones that are seen to be a little bit more moderate, more like pragmatic. So Milton Friedman and Fred Hayek, you know, Mm -hmm. they're moderate enough that they like advised the big conservative governments of the 80s that brought us into today's neoliberal corporations, control everything, privatize, cut taxes. State level psychopaths, right? (laughs) Comes from, yeah, it comes from Hayek advising Thatcher and Friedman advising Reagan and then later Pinochet, you know. So these guys were within the mainstream enough to go into like government on some kind of advisory role of different types, you know, we have other figures who are like much more like intellectual uh, libertarians. I remember Noam Chomsky, the great libertarian, uh, you know, left libertarian thinker uh, called them the consistent libertarians because they were willing to accept the completely goofy conclusions of real libertarian thinking, which is, yeah, private roads. And if you can't, if you're surrounded by private roads and you're too poor to pay, then, you know, you should just be trapped there. You did that to yourself somehow. Or yeah, private, like private courts and cops like that really, for all the problems that our public, you know, police departments and sheriff's offices have now from, you know, oppressing poor people and evicting people because of a disease to killing black people continuously, like at least they're publicly controlled on some level. And if people complain enough, they can be thrown out. You bring in new ones and maybe some laws can be changed. You know, you look at what the BLM movement's trying to achieve, you know, like that, none of that could be done if it was all private, just hired rent-a-cops, you know, like it is for all of its horrifying shortcomings, it's clearly better than just Mike Bloomberg having his own cops and they have their own laws that he passed in this area that he purchased or something like that. So, you know, there's a range of these guys like Murray Rothbard is another one of those guys like block. Who's just like way, way out there in what they, in the way they think society should and could work, you know, and I try to include them all in the book because, you know, some conservatives are just, you know, moderately libertarian and some are super purists like block and you want to make sure you include all these guys because they all have really stupid ideas that everyone should make fun of but it's funny too uh, you know block is especially and other like conservative economists you know economics as a field is such a ridiculous disgrace like this is my field is one where we get things completely wrong all the time all the time we think you know things you know the bush boom is going to keep going and then we get a gigantic financial crash and crash and recession i think we're ready to reopen the economy after the covid 19 shutdowns nope you're just mad because we're briefly not making money and it requires the government to pay a universal basic income that you don't like you know mm-hmm. so what they'll do though 
they don't just say they have these indefensible ideas. What they'll say is, yes, but economics were so sophisticated. Let me tell you about revealed preference and efficient marketplaces mm -hmm. and competitive free to enter market settings, very few of which exist in any significant scale in a modern capitalist economy. But it's very intimidating. And economics is the ultimate field for physics envy. Uh, I would just say our field has the highest ratio of pompous claims to actual deliverable results of any field that calls itself a science. It's pretty goofy. What was that whole thing with Jim Cramer? Remember when Jim Cramer was like, you should invest and then he's like- He's not that bad though, actually. Guy in financial crash. Whole thing. He, he's, he's he actually- like a, Wasn't like a, he like an old time trot too? Jim Cramer? Yeah. Am I wrong I about know, that? I don't like know about business, all that. Jim Cramer is a- No, he's on CNBC. Yeah. He was the whole like bang the buzzer. Guy, yeah, that's like, him. Get the money, like blah blah blah. But yeah. he's he said enough. Like he said not that long ago, Aaron's like we have to divest out of fossil fuels. These kids aren't going to deal with this, and they're not going to rock with this anymore. Absolutely, yeah. He's uh, one of those ridiculous. Anybody who comes out of American media is going to be a twisted freak. And Trump's a classic <laughs> example of that. You know, like he's not really from real estate. He's from TV. Everything he does, everything he says is all like for TV effect, you know. Uh, the same is true for Kramer. Yeah, Kramer, you know, it's that guy who hits buttons like, here's a stock to buy, what not to buy. And this audience is 10 million people. Like you're getting a hot stock tip at the same time as <laughs> 6 million viewers. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing I ever heard. But like he is kind of like, you want to, I, I, like I agree because like, uh, like business oriented media figures get, so much shittier than Jim Cramer. Like he's far from the least one, le far from the worst one. I think I did hear somewhere that he had like a radical youth or something. I know yeah. nothing about that. But I would say like every time the shit hits the fan with capitalism, he's there calling for some big rescue package. Like, you know, in uh, the 2008 finance crisis, he was saying the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department weren't doing enough to rescue investors and corporate stock prices. Today, he's saying, yeah, we need more like a, a, you know, a more comprehensive public rescue package to support people. But it's all there purely as a support for capitalism in its numerous staggering mm -hmm. moments. So I would say, like, you know, they certainly get shittier than him. It's mm -hmm. a long list. But, uh, like, he's that classic sort of figure who's, you know, capitalism's great. Capitalism's great. I'm rich. People can get rich. It's fine. As soon as something goes wrong, oh, my God, big government, please yeah, rescue out. us. And, like, oh anger, God. too. Like, you're in that 2008 uh, show that's famous, like, right when the meltdown in the markets was really happening and all the bankruptcies. It was unclear if we were about to have another full depression. The Fed kind of saved us from that. Uh, but when it was, you know, looking really bad, like he's literally yelling, like screaming into the camera, like he was saying something like people have no idea how bad it is out there. Why isn't the government saving us? This is a guy who, you know, will let you come on and talk about how big government taxes are discouraging investment in the markets yeah. until something goes wrong. And then I expect to have my freckled white ass rescued so I can go back to being a billionaire next year when yeah. things are stabilized. Right. He's just like you couldn't have a more classic figure who shows like the pathetic contradictory demands of a uh, you know finance-oriented figure. It, it, not to get too psychological or Freudian about it, but it's very sort of id, if you know what I mean. It's just such a, like, give me the stimulation that I want now. You know what I mean? Yeah, and don't See, put that, any restraints on me when things are big. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm making money. Stay away from me. That's the thing, though, with guys like that, like, and I, maybe I'm being naive, to where I think, like, guys like that who were able to take in information and then change their mind, even if it is just temporary, like, I'm I'm willing to deal with them than, like, the captain of the Titanic who thinks that nothing is wrong oh. and they think that everything's fine. 
I'm yeah, willing to deal know. with somebody who's like out for their own best interests that would also include everybody else. You don't like the dog that's in the burning house drinking the coffee saying this yeah, is fine? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's <laughs> insane. Yeah, that would be like a Larry Kudlow uh-huh. saying, you know, like Bush's exactly. chief economic advisor and uh, Bush's and now Trump's, of course. He was saying the Bush boom will keep going. And that was in like October of 2007, like you know, when the when the recession had already begun, for God's sake. Former co-host yeah. with Jim Cramer, by the way. Really? Yeah. yeah. I never watched it. They had a show called Cudlow and Kramer. Oh, oh my God. Gross. They really do deserve each other. That's, That's gross. Thanks for letting me know that. <laughs> this is, you know, and people, conservatives will tell you how liberal the media are. Like they're businesses, they're owned by big corporations, and their money comes from ad time that they sell to other companies. The last thing they're going to do is be like liberal, let's tax corporations, let alone socialists saying, you know, the public should own these corporations and the workers should decide what happens in them. Of course, it's conservative media. They're businesses. They want to maintain the status quo that's making them rich and making their shareholders, who are mostly wealthy people, very happy. You know, like, again, it's another example of how often their own world conservatives are. Liberal media, oh, another one of the, you know, like, they'll say like socialist, radical media, like CNN, another one of these socialist corporations I've heard about. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Advertisers are Rayathon. There's like this weird, and like this is, I'm always like, I'm less, way less interested in the economics of stuff than I am about like the, this kind of emotional and, and psychological drive behind things. But it is, has been really fascinating to me about how our country specifically thinks of capital as ours, even when it isn't ours. Like I brought up Elon Musk earlier because like I made, a critical online post about Elon Musk and got like three days of um, men who will never be able to afford a Tesla, like making me like rude, rude comments on my appearance. And I was like, what, what is this? And then <laughs> even thinking about like the, the reaction to um, black lives matter act like a, during like a target getting burnt down during demonstrations. And it's like this idea that like, Oh, somehow that's like personally insulting. And then yeah. I have a client. A man who, was murdered by the police, and you're worried about the fucking target, you know? No, and I no. This is so. I had a client um, who who like, for what it sounds like, maybe like did some like, I don't know, some some not legal things. But he he said to me specifically like, oh well, you know, I used to break legs, but I would never steal because I'm honest. And I was like, okay, so you would break. So it sounds like he worked for someone uh, like a loan shark or something. And so, but in his mind, it was more moral to break the kneecaps of someone who didn't pay back their debt than it was to, and this wasn't even like stealing from a store. This was like, oh, Best Buy was like throwing out their old merchandise, but I I would never take that because like I didn't pay for it. And that is immoral. And I was like, how on earth have we as a society come to think of like these these like entities, these giant corporate entities who like have insurance and who have built in margins where they expect a bunch of shit is going to get stolen from them. How are we like personally offended when someone shoplifts or burns a fucking target to the ground? Like, I don't, it's like, it drives me nuts. I think the, the, the kind of, um, so what I'm looking for, the silver lining in that story is though, that target even, Target made the the call. They ran the numbers and they said, "Hey, instead of us getting mad about this Target getting burned down, let's just be cool and just be like Black Lives Matter, y'all." So, I'm not saying capitalism can reform, be reformed, but I'm saying we could put social pressure on it to dominate it on the way to the gallows to kill it. Yeah, it's true. I'm all for that, you know. And of course, whatever you know, 
every dumb conservative meme page now is like, look at this corporation and just put BLM on something. And now everyone thinks they're nice. Like corporations will co-opt any positive mm-hmm. movement in society, you know, up, up to and including same sex couples and commercials. Mm-hmm. It's opportunistic, you know. But I mean, that's not bad. At least they're not standing in the way, at least up to that point of this issue. You know, like I'd rather have some phony corporation co-opt yeah, BLM for a commercial. You know, no conservative complains when they wave the flag on the 4th of July and these corporations outsource to China and Central America every day. Right. It's That's a phony virtue signaling thing too. But the right only notices it when it's some left-wing or progressive cause like Me Too or, you know, like some uh, economic issue. Uh, that's the only time when they're concerned about their use of it. But that's true. You know, like this social pressure, you know, like there are a lot of intermediate steps before we get to the point of a revolution and changing where power and wealth are in the society. And this is, you know, the kind of thing that's a totally legit step forward for us. If corporations are willing to accept it and give it at least some version of a platform with their gigantic ad buys, I say, so be mm-hmm. it. That's at least not one of the shitty things of our society. Anyway. Yeah. I want to change gears a little bit. a good barometer, at least, to see where we are societally. Because it's like, okay, if a corporation has decided to slap some, like, pride logos on stuff, then, like, okay, like, societally that we are, like, at a point where we are way better, like, we are way more on board with gay marriage than we ever have been. Like, it's not like I think that they're necessarily, like, changing hearts and minds but i do yeah. think they're like a good barometer like okay it's cool. something like, it's something of a social bellwether don't you think yeah yeah, yeah my, like my, we we're watching a cheerios commercial my mom was like oh i love that they have that the, uh, a mixed race couple on there that's really <laughs> you know, i really love to see that i was like okay Cool. Yeah, wow. but like also though they're always on the tail end of it though. Like there's yeah. no corporation oh, yeah. in the Stonewall riots, you know, there's no corporation saying it's wrong that you're killing all these black people. Oh, a huge uprising. Oh, uh, we now support this cause. Like they're on the back end of it. Yeah. You know, showing, showing who's like we're pro prison abolition, like fuck that. They back yeah, Bernie. They back Bernie. <laughs> In our anti-war, yeah, the pro-burning. Like, but again, that's the company that people bring up to go, well, they're not all bad. Yeah, but yeah, if I could, if true. everyone points to one example, like that shows like it's the example that proves the rule. That's the that's right. what they call it. And also Ben and Jerry's is um if you eat Ben and Jerry's, it's not BDS friendly. So sorry, everybody. Nope. So. No corporation's perfect. <laughs> um, so just wanted to change gears a little bit and talk about some uh, articles that you've written. I wanted to talk, we talked a little bit before about one that you wrote about the uh COVID, but I want before we get to that, uh, you wrote a fantastic article that I, as a teacher, appreciate uh, because this guy has made such a splash, a splash in uh, education with the billions of dollars that he's throwing. And, and, and the, the title of the article is fantastic. It is Bill Gates' philanthropic philanthropic giving is a racket. And like uh, one of the things that I think of when it comes to somebody like Bill Gates is that he has made my life. Like him, Michael Bloomberg, Eli Broad, all these fucking billionaires have made my life as an educator markedly worse by throwing it by using by using their freedom to throw in billions of dollars into our education system to bring in things like charter schools and teacher evaluations and standardized testing standardized to, tests, yeah. to worst things that that for for any kind of education, for any kind of learning, for any kind of, of actual thinking. Uh, could you talk a little bit about um uh, the, the the Bill Gates and why his uh, philanthropic giving is a racket? For sure. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. So this is something I wrote for Jacoban a while ago that sure did get a lot of attention. Like people mm-hmm. are interested in this issue. 
I assume some of it is just because, you know, Gates is a big famous billionaire, but also because just lately with COVID, like Bill Gates, like conspiracy theories are really big. Yeah. He's a billionaire and he's pushing for different kinds of vaccinations for, you know, in general and certainly for this disease. And he also has this horrible role shaping policy. Yeah. Like promoting shitty charter schools where we go on paying for the schools, but some billionaire or some Christian conservatives write all the curriculum and mm-hmm. decide what happens bunch of bullshit so anyway yeah gates it's kind of interesting you know uh the first uh one of the one of the uh early chapters in bit tyrants in that book i have a chapter on each of the big five uh, mm-hmm. the big five platform giant corporations you know these trillion dollar companies so microsoft apple uh amazon google and facebook those five uh, the five biggest corporations in the country right now you know very unusual for them to all be from one sector like the tech mm-hmm. sector uh, in this case. So I have a whole chapter on him and Microsoft and their relentless record of sleazy douchebaggery. Uh, it's pretty extensive. Like Bill Gates, you know, basically gets lucky. He, really, you know, he grew he grows up rich. Like a lot of these build it up from a garage tech entrepreneurs. They actually come from money or, mm-hmm. you know, and got borrowed money from their parents to start out. And Gates is actually the, maybe the clearest case because you know, Bill Gates is running this tiny uh, Seattle area software operation, but he grew up in a wealthy elite family. Like mm-hmm. when he's a kid, like he knew the Republican governor of the state of Washington at that time. That's not, you pretty, know, incredibly. You guys don't know our governor? Pretty nice bootstraps to pull yourself up by. I know seven governors. <laughs> Who doesn't know their governor? What's what's wrong? Get out and hustle. Yeah. So anyway, but he, uh, so, you know, he comes from a family you know, with kind of elite money and connections. But he, Microsoft's big break, the reason they are the world's biggest corporation by market capitalization now, and you know, a household name for decades now, it's because they produced the operating system that went on to the earliest like individual computers, you know, the first PCs, the personal computers in the early 80s, originally put out by IBM, but because it used off-the-shelf parts, it was copied by a bunch of other companies. So they talk about the clones of IBM and IBM PCs. He made the, his company uh, made the operating system for that thing, MS-DOS, what later, of course, went on to become uh, stupid Windows. Yeah. And that, that company became gigantic because IBM picked it for its operating system on these computers and it then became standard on all of the clones too. And that's why they became huge and basically controlled the world of computing from the 80s until the beginning of the mobile era, you know, almost 30 years later, right? Where was, the freedom, where was, the, freedom, many, where was the freedom then? Where was the freedom to pick other operating systems? Why you have freedom a monopoly. To pick There's no freedom here, but you, know, <laughs> you could start your own operating system and somehow claw your way. If you have a fantastical view of society, maybe the Lord will reach down and touch your finger and your operating system. Will take That's away. why Macintosh had that terrible, cringy 1984 um, yeah. ad. Uh, ad because they were like, we're taking a stand against the DOS operating system. Yeah, and lousy <laughs> Windows and its monopoly. The only reason they had to do that was because Steve Jobs, who people think is this visionary, but is actually the clumsiest CEO. I have so much to say. We could sure come back to Jobs. Yeah. But he oh, he failed to understand how network effects and platforms work two separate times. First with the Apple III, which he closed off and didn't allow port software. And then again with the mobile era with the first iPhone. We should come back to him and his embarrassing yeah, circle back. But Gates got that IBM contract, which made Microsoft and put him in charge of computing for decades because, I mean, it appears. No one knows why IBM chose this unknown Seattle company when there were big other tech options. But it is known that IBM's then CEO was on the board of the United Way with Bill Gates's mom. Because they came from money and they had a shared board connection. This is how like things happen early. Power. 
yeah, you know, someone who's on a big nonprofit or corporate board. And that's where like all the sleazy uh, decisions get made over golf courses and expensive lunches and stuff like that. So that's how he got that in the very first place, you know? So in the first place, his fortune's kind of a sham. Then that inaugurates the whole period where windows runs all of computing crushes opponents again i you know in my research for bit tyrants you know i mostly rely on business journalists like they're the people collecting the information about these companies at the time it's kind of what you have to rely on Mm -hmm. and like most media like we were saying they're pretty conservative you know they're pro-business they're making a newspaper like you know like the wall street journal or you know bloomberg or something that's for executives investors and managers to make money from and they record him doing all this stuff like doing this move like smashing his fist into his hand many times, like in different conversations and saying, we've got to crush like Novell, a competitor in networking, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got to crush Lotus because they're competing with Word. And that's the reality of market capitalist competition. Idiots think it's, oh, well, may the best man win. And if you ever lose your touch, someone else will come and steal it. The reality is you figure, you know, you get big, you find your competitors, you crush them in some manner, maybe through out-competing them, Maybe by being sleazy and fucking them over somehow. Or by buying them. George Orwell, uh, when he was reviewing Fred Hayek's book, he said Hayek won't accept or won't admit that you know, he, he said the problem with competitions is someone wins them. And now you have some winner who dominates some important market, mm-hmm. you know. But it's in the 90s that Bill Gates is throwing his monopoly weight around so much that he attracts the attention of the Justice Department and, and originally the Federal Trade Commission, who in the United States will let you get away with quite a bit uh, before they come after you. But he was being so flagrant and making such a long list of corporate enemies by crushing them or destroying them in one another way, that especially when he went after Netscape and tried to take over the first internet browsing markets back when the internet was this brand new, exciting thing. And there's hundreds of websites. Oh my goodness, how will we keep up with them all? So he tr- took over that market. That was how he got in trouble for violating America's antitrust law. The technical parts of it I talk about in the chapter. In America, it's technically not illegal to have a monopoly. Only certain kinds of ways of getting monopolies are illegal. So because Microsoft was a monopoly just because of platform economics, like that was okay. Like they never went after him ever for having a monopoly over 90% share of the the operating system computing market. They went after him for using that monopoly, which was fine, to take over (laughs) and monopolize other adjacent markets, in this case, web browsing. That's what you have to do to get in trouble in America. That's why these companies... Now, this is antitrust law. Most of this was reformed by a bunch of University of Chicago economists mm-hmm. who are famous for being pieces of shit. Uh, they, they're the ones who said, you know, if you're not hiking prices, you're not hurting consumers. So the government shouldn't go after you, which is why I think Google will still get a, and Facebook will get away with everything, even if the whole both congressional parties are shitting on them right now for the cameras. I kind of expect mm-hmm. them to skate like antitrust oh, yeah. law is not really set up to go after this kind of market power. But the thing is, when Bill Gates and Microsoft were on trial in the 90s for this monopolization, people don't remember this now. Like now Bill Gates is just like this grandfatherly figure who's rich and uses money to fight AIDS in Africa. And is what, flies on Epstein's plane. So. Yeah, no, no, that's not been proven. Uh, I'm sure he has no connection to that. Jill? Yeah. He was spying for uh, the FBI on Epstein is what he was doing. Yeah, I'm enjoying the discovery process of the uh, Maxwell trial. Some of us are very excited about that. Uh, right. But so Bill Gates, he was looking really bad for that. Like he was a Simpsons villain briefly in an episode, you know, you know that's the 90s. And so at that time, he's looking terrible. Like they proved that he, pl- he uh, 
yeah, I mean, you know, technically in his video deposition, he, you know, yeah, perjured himself. Uh, so at, that's the time in the late nineties when he's looking like shit on TV every night, that's the period when Bill Gates starts taking his billions and billions of dollars from owning, you know, a big share of Microsoft, which, you know, big share, a uh, big proportion of the shares of Microsoft that runs computing and starts putting billions of dollars, like these big eight figure donations into his foundation. That's when it happens. The huge majority, you know, the business press has discussed this and you can read all about it. And I cite the sources in my book. That's when he made all those giant donations. It's when he was looking like crap. It's reputation laundering. And after a while, people forgot about Microsoft's antitrust trial. When Bush stole the election, his Justice Department dropped the uh, desire to break up the company and they were able to kind of police themselves, which, you know, means nothing. So now Bill Gates People now, he got he skated on his monopoly charge thanks to George W. Bush. And now he uses his money to, yeah, ruin education, throw some money at NGOs doing positive, important work in Africa. But people also forget how many hoops that uh, big foundations like Bill Gates force these charities to jump through mm -hmm. just to get a, you know, six-figure check from them. Mm -hmm. So these charities have huge chunks of their operations that are just there to appease the Gates and Clintons of the world who are trying to burnish their ugly turd reputations yeah. by you know, being able to claim credit for fighting AIDS in Africa. So it's a pretty ugly history, and that's what I was getting into in that article. And to, well, and to an extent, they're, they're purchasing patronage as well abroad and for a very oh. low price. Oh, I'm yeah. Sorry. And Bloomberg is actually the clearer case of that, you know, because Bloomberg will, you know, give, you know, what are huge amounts of money to like very legit civil rights groups, you know, like, you know, like minority city groups in different towns, you know, a lot of gun or, stuff you know, with uh, him, a lot of, of lot chambers of uh -huh. commerce. Yeah. Stuff like that. And then suddenly they support his presidential bid and, you know, he gave them $200,000, which to them, like to you and me, 200 grand. That's a, you could buy a house with that. That's like a huge amount of money to Michael Bloomberg. Like that's just, that's like skin cells falling off his body. Like he'll never notice that much money, you know? And uh, Michael Bloomberg actually donated a bunch of money to the center for American progress. Um, and they mysteriously took out um, the, the part of their report on um, FBI tactics in the United States to take out his um, illegal surveillance of um of Muslims in New York. So that's cool. <laughs> but I, I just feel like this whole conversation is like, it just shows how deeply ingrained this idea that capitalism and freedom are tied because they're obviously like conspiracy theories are so fascinating to me because <laughs> there is clearly a conspiracy going on with Bill Gates, but it's not that he's going to inject us all with chips. It's that he's using his untold wealth to buy influence and break laws. And, um, you know, thank you for bringing up that nonprofit stuff. When our Tuesday show, we talked a little bit about like how all these nonprofits are kind of scrap, having to scrap for money to provide services that the government should be providing. Um, but so like there is this, there is a conspiracy there, but I think a lot of people in the country can sense that that's, that something is wrong, that something is off with that. But instead of like looking at, at what is the most direct and easiest explanation that he has too much money, he throws his money around. They're saying, no, he um, is donating all this money to Africa um, because he's like using them as guinea pigs to test this chip technology. And he started COVID and also 5G. And like, that's how they're all controlling us. Um, via our brains and it's like no they're controlling us via lack of choice and right. resources it's like no they're they are controlling us like don't get that twisted it's just 
how on earth did you come to this chip conclusion? Like, yeah, see, that to me is the big thing. Like conspiracy theory, you know, is, you know, of, of, conspiracies are thriving in America now, like, you know, like never before, really. But to me, like, none of this is a conspiracy. You know, like if you know, I'm Bill Gates and I decide I'm going to try to crush this competitor so I can control the market and make more money and give that money to my rich shareholders. Like, that's not a conspiracy. That's just a corporate decision to dominate a market, you know? Conspiracy usually means like some secret thing where people are acting against what you think are their interests, you know? Like the government's supposed to protect us, but they secretly cause 9-11, you know? <laughs> or the government's supposed to serve us, but it's QAnon. They're actually all sa Satan-worshipping child traffickers and stuff. Yeah, like there's no evidence for all this goofy shit. But the shit that we have evidence of, like with Gates and Bloomberg, like we can, you know, like we these are nonprofits. Like you can look at their checks that they write to these people. Like that's not a conspiracy. Like we can all see the money being spent there. Most people just aren't paying attention, I think. So it feels like a conspiracy. How is that guy so powerful? He must have some evil Satan club he's in with other people. Like, no, no, it's just a rich elite society. They meet, they have chambers of commerce and they go to Davos. It's like all in the open though. Like yeah. the, evil for, the evil remote ruling class of bastards that controls us is real. But they're like all really visible. Their names are on the Fortune 500 or you know, on the, uh, you know, the Forbes lists of wealthy people. And they talk about how wealthy they are. Like there's limits to how deep we can see into their empires. But to me, that's not a conspiracy. Like this is just people following their institutional incentives and being evil pieces of shit for sure. And they'll try to keep the ugly parts of it out of getting attention and usually succeed at that as we're talking about here. But that's separate from a conspiracy. That's where you've got some giant claim with no evidence of people secretly doing stuff that would be insane, but they're huge claims. They require huge evidence too. Like this goofy QAnon shit. If all these, if all these people in the political parties and a national government are Satan worshiping child traffickers, that's a pretty big claim. I'm going to need to see some pretty big evidence. And when you ask QAnon people, you know, I've had students and I know people who are interested in that. They'll say, oh, well, look at this tiny insignificant detail. Like, look at this weird one email. So that proves it. Like, no, nah, no, nah, you're going to have to. Yeah, it's also, to I mean, like, yeah, not to go into like the QAnon stuff too much, but like also that is a really fascinating one to me because like, it, again, like many of our government figures like have like are pedophiles. Like there's the, all the stuff with Epstein, there's, um, you know, Bill, I mean, and I won't say pedophiles, but like at least sex offenders, like Bill oh, Clinton that's, was incredibly that's easy to show, of, yeah. of rape in addition to sexual assault, in addition to being on Epstein's plane, then you have like, we were talking earlier about um, that dude from Alabama who like was, you know, preyed oh, on 17-year-olds. Um, Jerry Seinfeld had a 17-year-old girlfriend in high school yeah. for a long time. So I think what you're saying is that, I think what you're saying is that, I think, what? What you're, I think what you're saying is that despite that that evidentiary explanation that you're providing, you can't really tell us what happened in the basement of Comet Ping Pong. Oh my god. <laughs> it just, it's so frustrating because I'm like, okay, yes, this stuff is happening. It's just not like this Kabbalistic like ritual thing. It's just that societally we don't care about sexual assault, so we let sexual pre like predators become president. Like yeah, and it's, it's not it's, like this crazy like there's like the, the problems are there and you're like people are picking up on the fact that like shit is terrible but they they're like it's it's almost as if like oh if it was out here in the open this whole time that means we didn't see it and we're stupid so it's like much easier to say like oh um all of these elites get together once a year and like sacrifice a bunch of animals and drink their blood in robes rather than they all have each other's fucking cell phones 
and can like text each other yeah. about market advice. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so, and of course it ends up being, yeah, that like many of these guys and they are mostly guys, like many of them, yeah, like have records of, yeah, like sexually abusing subordinates or threatening to, and records of full on sex assault, like Clinton and Joe Biden. You know, no need to let him get away with anything since yeah. he's probably about to be the big dick that we all complain about. You know, Trump, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, he bragged about it, that big, dumb idiot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's probably totally true. COVID. Uh, you know, that's going to be uh, into conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, he, he'd recover like Johnson and Bolsonaro both got it and they're wretched souls oh, are still yeah, walking no, there. And it's going to he's going to die first day in office. Henry Kissinger is still alive. Longer. Yeah, you can't you see if, if you're evil enough, like you don't have blood anymore, you know, like you're not like susceptible to normal human diseases and stuff like that. Th th that is true. That is scientifically substantiated. But you're totally right. Like all these guys have terrible records because we, we have a society based on like big, powerful hierarchies in government and money and in, you know, within the family and lots of other uh, social structures. They're all hierarchical rungs of power where you shit, get shat on by whoever's on top of you and shit on whoever's under you. And that's supposed to make up for it, you know. And so like, that's what conservatives are usually defending in one or another form, you know? So of course, if people have a bunch of power and they're used to having power and society talks about how right and good it is that they have all this influence and power over people, of course, they're going to be like weird, twisted monsters that sexually harass people and will molest whoever they think they can get away with, you know? And, you know, you molest a kid like that's, you know, when you get into pedophile stuff, that's radioactive. That's why I think most of these guys know to avoid that up to a point. We'll see how the Epstein plain manifests develop you know those documents are still coming out i'm very interested in well that now too. it's radioactive but i mean i, I know this is not but, but like it used to be fine to date a 16 or 17 year old like that was not a thing so like sure. i think our like now they're trying to distance themselves but like before it was like not something like bob oh, not bob ross what's his name? no not bob ross never bob, bob ross leave him out of this <laughs> uh, not no no who's um who's that comedian who does all the um the rose Anyways, oh, anyway, anyway, yeah. it's coming out that he had a 15-year-old girlfriend for like a really long time and everybody knew about it. And so it's just this, this idea, like, I'm interested to see, give it like 20 to 25 years, like what mm -hmm. conspiracy theories pop up about like whatever bullshit all these rich men are doing right now that we just like don't care about. Like, maybe we'll, look, <laughs> maybe we'll move totally left and like them, like these, like corporations crushing each other won't be acceptable anymore. And then- it'll be like, oh, this giant conspiracy theory. I don't know. I just, I really hate, I'm like, I'm in a very anti-business people mood. Uh, you know, I'm, wow. I'm willing to sign up on that. Yeah. But still, go, let's go back to Steve Jobs. Cause like, yeah. Oh, go back to him. I'm delighted to talk about that. So after I finish up with uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates in the book and move on to looking at Apple and of course, Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs is this great modern capitalist figure. Like he is the iconic tech capitalist like he's the original douchebag who went up on stage in a turtleneck and sneakers and acted like a rock star and everyone went oh fascinating yeah and he gets all this credit for being a visionary you know and like iron man movies are based on him and every ceo every ceo now goes up and does this rock and roll power talk and it is the oh god it's, it's so the tired. funniest of balonies you could possibly yeah. imagine yeah but so uh jobs though is great because i mean there's really two things about jobs one is that he, every I didn't know this before I got into it. I didn't go into this book planning to talk about what a bunch of wretched scumbags these CEOs are, but just reading the pro-business, pro-capitalist business journalism around them, 
it's an inescapable conclusion. Like Bezos is famous for chewing out workers in front of everybody and in front of all their coworkers and friends. Mm. Gates um, has this old record of, uh, you know, crushing his competitors and getting all of his coworkers to kind of rock back and forth. Like he does, you know, mm. I mean, it's fine if he's on the spectrum or whatever, but then when all your coworkers are, you're all your like subordinates, your junior mm-hmm. executives are rocking back and forth in time. It's like, Oh, okay. You're like a creepy cult leader. I get it. Okay, mm-hmm. That's fine. But Steve Jobs is the ultimate <laughs> case. Every account of his life talks about what a wretched dick he was to everyone around him. Like sweet Steve Wozniak, who, you know, the guy who actually made the early Apple computers, you know, yeah. the guy who did sweet the work, guy. the guy who was yeah, like yeah, the, the, the original worker that was exploited by the original capitalist of Apple. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he, he is the archetype. He's the prototype, I guess we would yeah. say. Of that, yeah, who made the original circuit boards and like the original Apple computers? Uh, you know, the earliest days, he uh, Jobs got some money from Atari to make some video game for them, you know, on the old console, and uh, he didn't know how to do it, so he got Wozniak to code it, and then later gave him like 500 bucks for it. And years later, Wozniak found out that Jobs got paid thousands of bucks for it, and he gave Wozniak like a few pennies. So he said, when he found out, he cried. He said, you know, Aww, what a sweetie. Steve Jobs, you know, you know, illegitimate kid who he refused to acknowledge. And he's a wretched dick to everyone, every one of his subordinates that he worked with. He ended up having to park his car around back at the corporate at the uh, part of the Apple campus where he was working on uh, the Lisa because people would key his car all the time. Hell yeah. Because because you're a good person. So you're getting keyed constantly. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the thing about him is that he's kind of amazing because he's actually the most inept of all the CEOs. I look at several of them like uh, Jeff Bezos or Mike Zuckerberg of Facebook, they went into these markets knowing about the network effect of these information-based industries where if you're an early sort of incumbent, you can dominate the whole industry forever because people join Facebook or Instagram or YouTube because that's where all the videos and the other content creators are. You're going there because they're already big and popular because that's what's attractive about it to you Mm -hmm. is connecting with other users or viewers or seeing what other people are posting. So Zuckerberg and Bezos knew about that early on and Gates too. And they're on the record talking about how, you know, Gates wants to set the industry standard, you know, meaning like, you know, we'll decide what the standard is and use that to control it. And Bezos trying to get third party sales going, even though knowing it would cannibalize Amazon's own sales, because that's how you build up the platform and attract all these independent sellers who now make up more than half of Amazon's total sales, you know, Mm -hmm. but jobs is the opposite of that, right? Freaking preening dick. I'm sorry. I get very, I'm very, (laughs) toward these guys. I would never say these words in class. So uh, Jobs in, you know, the Apple II, right? That's like the the Apple computer that like longtime computer users fondly look look back on. I personally know a few people who are big Apple fans Mm -hmm. who still have Apple II computers that they've kept alive down the years because Apple II was an open system. You know, they let people make their own applications for it. You mean the Oregon Trail machine? That's what I know it as. That's what I know it as. For sure. That's just totally... Totally. It shows the value of that platform. Hey, exactly. you know, we, were, we were using that early. We could not have died of dysentery. It was a beast. It was a war. It was a war. <laughs> war. Not for that platform. Yeah. So, you know, you could, you could port your own software over to the Apple II and they didn't try to control it. And they physically put all these slots on the computer where you could connect all kinds of not intended to be supported third-party peripherals. So you could do a lot with the computer. So it was super popular. Like that was their first big breakthrough, the Apple II. But then Jobs, unlike Wozniak, was more in charge of the Apple III. And he made all these horrible changes that almost destroyed the entire company. He closed it. He wouldn't allow people to, he, he, he wouldn't allow ports of software. He said, everyone should make their own software just for my wonderful computer. That's how you guarantee there won't be enough games and useful applications psychopath. to build up a big market for it, you know? 
ignoring the network effect and the platform economics of it, you know, and that ended up leading to the company's decline and it's horrible period through the nineties, making all these computers that people didn't want to use. The company almost goes bankrupt after nine, you know, around 98. In that period, Bill Gates writes Steve Jobs a letter. And that letter tells Steve Jobs how to use network effects to build up a monopolistic platform. And it's in the letter. I, I quote a shitload of it in the book because it's fascinating. This was at a time when Gates was desperate to avoid being seen as a monopoly because of the Justice Department antitrust trial. Right. And so keeping Apple alive was a good way to do that. See, there's, you know, they have an operating system. We don't have a complete monopoly. We only have 92% of the market. It's nothing. And so he's like trying to get Steve Jobs to be a better shitty monopolist just to defend his own much bigger, more lucrative monopoly. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of stuff that makes you have to donate to fight AIDS to look better because you're being such a douche. Wow. It's interesting. <laughs> Jobs refused to listen. And then he left Apple and then comes back, of course, famously. Everyone's like, oh, what a genius. He came back and he's triumphant. According to what we know about the company, like Johnny Ive, the designer who actually designed most of the modern, you know, iPhone, premises, the Apple yeah. computers and, you know, uh, the iPhone and stuff are designed around. Jobs resisted the iPod and then the iPhone. He resisted porting iTunes to, to Windows, which is what allowed the iPod to take off in the first place and reach most computing users. And then when the iPhone came out, Jobs again refused to let it be open you know, an open uh, architecture, you know, where anyone can come in and make a game or an application, you know, or a data tool or something on it. You had to go through Apple and get approval for the apps from the Apple store, you know, the app store. And now that's one of the things they're under investigation for. And last year, the Supreme Court ruled they can be sued for higher prices that we iPhone users pay for our apps because Apple monopolizes that gatekeeper role through its mm -hmm. Apple store. They have this, you can look this up right now. Anyone can Google this. Apple has this long list of reasons for software developers for why they might reject your app from the phone. And it's a long list. And in the list are other reasons that may lead us to reject it that we won't specify here. Mm -hmm. So they're you know, monopolistically controlling it. But that's what gave Google the opening to make what is now, you know, the Android operating system and all of its variants, which are, I mean, they vary a lot, but they tend to be open architecture so people can make their own games and software to run on the people's phones and, uh, you know, really increases the variety of things you can get access to. That is why, along with pricing, Apple insists on luxury good premium pricing, so that's in there. But those two things are why. Android runs about 90% of the world's smartphones and Apple iOS runs 10%. Mm -hmm. So Steve Jobs to me is kind of amazing because everyone sees him as this big business genius and visionary when in fact, he's this unique figure. I don't know of another example of someone who completely bungled understanding the economics of their field, killed their company in the 90s with the Apple III or the late 80s, whenever that was, and then killed it again, killed its global market share again when it made the same fucking mistake in the mobile era, <laughs> even though they were first to that market by years. You know, they could have monopolized that market if Steve Jobs wasn't too busy screaming at his subordinates and denying paternity to realize how the economics of his industry Didn't, didn't he kill himself by, like, trying to cure his cancer with green juice? Okay, so okay, that's, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But... People know, of course, yeah, Jobs got... Well, there's the cat, there's the cat. No, in, I, in, in typical yes. treatments he tried to like alternative therapy himself to wellness it's true yeah 
And I tend not to go after these guys like actual personal lives too much. Denying paternity is kind of ugly. So I'll bring that one in. But it is true. You know, he's a California guy. And uh, this is, you know, at at a time when, you know, alternative medicine, like now it's an institution in California. It was kind of a newer thing, I I guess you could argue at that time. And it's true. Like he was into more dietary therapies and resisted, you know, chemo and stuff. You know, I got to say, you know, as a someone who's, you know, lost family members to cancer, like, very sad. It's horrible suicidal move. Like you're right. Like you're right to use that term, but it's hard. I always find I have a hard time criticizing oh, people. Yeah. No, it's, it's they're rude. fighting cancer because yeah, chemotherapy, it, the whole goal of chemotherapy is to kill you and hopefully the tumor dies first. Like mm-hmm. that's the whole goal of radiation and chemotherapy I is your tumor probably extra, dies first. I'm being extra mean about him and for extremely oh. petty reasons because I have, um, I switched from an iPhone to an Android phone. Oh, and, how, and how have you found it? I love it. Love it. Never going back. Um, really just was a great decision for me and my family. Um, no, but it, they, a fucking Apple just bought my favorite weather app and made it like an Apple exclusive product. And I haven't found one that like, I like as much. So if listeners, if you have a recommendation to replace dark sky on my phone, cause I didn't realize how much I would miss it. And now I like really truly hate the ghost of Steve jobs. Like if Steve Jobs materialized in front of me right now, I would spit. It would go through the him. It'd be a ghost. But yeah. I, I just am so upset <laughs> about the whole situation. I don't even really know what to do. Uh, this is what happens when you've got the power of money or a monopoly. You know, like yeah, you can inflict shitty events on people like this. What about your positive freedom to have access to that app? Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to have to get a. You have to go back to another platform and change all your apps back and spend the money of rebuying half of them, you know? Sorry, so but freedom, freedom is it's not, another big feature of these kind of markets. Freedom does not hold a candle to intellectual property law, my friend. That's a, that's <laughs> yeah, intellectual thing. property law, exactly. I've been kind of holding this in, but that's another thing, just another petty thing about Apple is that everything that people like tout about an Apple device, an iOS device from like anything that's like on a computer or on a phone or whatever was not created by Apple. They went out and they corporate raided it. They stole it from another company and then sued that company for producing the thing that they sold. They stole from them. It's Steve Jobs has never done anything creative in his life except build a walled garden to suck people into that 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 um, iOS. Right, you're Elizabeth right. Holmes Elizabeth sorry. Holmes is a better business person than Steve Jobs. Oh, absolutely. Oh, you got a little buddy down there. Hey, little buddy. Over your shoulder. Oh, yeah, yeah, a little kitten. One of the kittens. Um, I have three kittens running around the house. The only reason my dog, who normally barks really loudly whenever I get like excited about anything, which is frequently, um, he's not, he's at my mom's house right now. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's good. My cat's still having a bath, so she's letting us uh, talk for the moment. Uh, It's true. Intellectual property laws are like a fascinating part of this. Obviously, a lot of bit tyrants that comes up frequently. And there's sort of two things to say about that. The first is, yeah, absolutely. Intellectual property laws are like your most classic monopoly tool possible. And up to a point, that is what they were designed to do, right? I always remind my students, like patent laws in the constitution, you know? And the whole idea was you get a temporary monopoly if you invent something useful. So it's like an incentive for people to do research and innovate and invent new shit. And you can make an argument that that is an important incentive. I think people, I come out of the sciences myself, I kind of think people like to do research and invent things anyway. I don't know if they need a legally sanctioned monopoly for 20 years. It at least is debatable. You could argue either side of it, you know? But it is true the way it gets used in practice today. I don't think the founding fathers, like they're most, there was a pre-capitalist period before the industrial revolution and modern like industry and capitalism, you know? So now like, it's true. Like I remember um, 
what was that like 2004 or something when Google bought Motorola? Why were they buying stupid Motorola with its aging obsolete phones? Well, they bought it for the patent portfolio. So it must've been after 2004, but you know, they bought it so they could have access to intellectual property so they could fight Apple over the smartphone operating system market, mm-hmm. you know? And that's totally true. Like if you look at how Apple developed like all the interfaces on its phone itself, they're mostly bought from other entities. Like the actual uh, multi-touch interface was developed by this guy who was making computer applications uh, for people with disabilities mm. who couldn't just interact through the normal mouse and keyboard, you know, it ended up being a really important innovation. We all love our phones. Again, the first page of my book talk about how much, how much we rely on our phones. And I certainly do I'm not trying to say we're above that or something like that. That's oh, what idiot conservatives think we think. They're incorrect about that. But it's all about amassing this giant wall of protection that keeps you uh, from being challenged in the market or it limits your challengers to like the two existing companies in the oligopoly, like Apple and Google for smartphone operating systems. But I have to tell you now that it is true that, like you said, IP is the opposite of advancing freedom. Libertarians do know that and they will bring it up when you talk about how concentrated that market is and how wrong it is that Apple and Google like are able to decide what apps we get on our phone. The first thing out of their mouths will be, well, if big government didn't force these intellectual property laws on us, then there would be a rich competitive market and we wouldn't have any of these problems. So it's all the government's fault. Libertarians will very frequently try to surprise you by agreeing that the things the left says are bad are problems, but then they'll come up with some absurd contrived reason why it's all because of the government policy that came from the New Deal period to try to deal with what happened when we had a free market and those things were out of running wild, you know. So wild. Uh, so IP is a huge tool of monopoly, but that's not where platform economics come from. Like Google and Apple control that market, even if they didn't have the patent rights to it. But the fact is they do, and it's an extra tool. It's a way they can use state power, legal, the power of the law, on top of their existing market power. Like an example I like is the the, uh, one-click purchase link. You know, the click to buy link that you see when you're like buying music online or when you're on Amazon and shit like that. That shit was developed and patented by Amazon. And so in the early 2000s, when the iTunes and then, you know, the, and the iPod and then later the iPhone were like exploding and becoming big, Apple and still Apple still does this. They pay a license fee to Amazon for use of their patented click here to buy. That's patented. They patented that shit. And that's just not, you know, Amazon struggles to this day to earn a profit. Really only its cloud computing segment is profitable. But a big part of, you know, their big top line revenue is patent licensing income like that it's uh it's stupid it's incredible that's because, uh, that's because google goes. plus failed <laughs> that's well google plus a classic example of why platform economics give these companies power you know google plus come together and all your friends have an account and you do and you can share your files and links and cat photos and recipes and shit it's going to be great but of course we already have facebook and twitter <laughs> yeah. and instagram for that shit and it's very difficult to compete with a, mo- a node that everyone's already on. That's what a platform is, you know, some mm-hmm. central location that brings people together to share content or, you know, to make a or to attract developers to make new games or applications yeah. available. The smartphone app stores are platforms, and so are YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. So even a big company like Google, yeah, which has a huge user base and runs platforms like Google Search and YouTube and Android. Google's a platform company, but even they couldn't take over another company's existing platform. Like you couldn't have a clearer case of the monopoly potential of platforms than that one. It's yeah. like a great example, man. 
That's yeah. What I, thought. I think that uh, we should start wrapping it up, but really, uh, I appreciate you really jumping in and, and uh, talking with us. Uh, we should definitely have you come back on the show, uh, Rob. Uh, anything you want to say before we go? You want to talk about your book? You wanna, we, we can get in contact with you. Uh, and anything else you want to shout out? Right on. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. This is a pleasure, guys. This is a fun talk. This really mm-hmm. went all over the place. This is, uh, I had a good time. You guys have a lot of uh, fun shit to say. This was mm-hmm. great. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I do a lot of writing for current affairs these days. People yeah. should check we, it out. We love Nathan. He's a friend of the show. He's a friend yeah. IRL, actually, too. Friend the of the guy. Pod. Nathan is a terrible tyrant who forces innocent leftists to read dog shit right wing literature just so that we can write hilariously scathing reviews. I will say I though that he does do it himself. Yeah, I gotta hand it to him. He does more of it than any of us. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And also, it does lead to really, really good product. Like Luke yeah. Savage had to read those uh, Obama staffer memoirs a while ago. Oh that my current God. affairs article is fucking thing. hilarious. Yeah. People should read that. And if people like that, uh, the next print issue, which should be out like a month and a half or something, of uh, current affairs, he uh, sent me a giant box of uh, libertarian children's literature. Oh my it's god. Exactly what you're thinking it is. It's like oh. the, the it's like the Jekyll Island like children's books. <laughs> totally. I've seen them shits that. in the wild. I've seen That's them. That's one of those. I got to tell you I read that pile of garbage and it was one of the hardest I will say this they're horrible to do the research on because you have to read just reeking vomit that these idiots think is insight and these conservatives all think they're the savvy operators of the world and the stuff they believe is very, very stupid. But then writing it is very fun because you get to just be scathing and pour out all your anger onto the page. That's mm-hmm. fun. So that'll be coming out in a little while. Uh, that's the Tuttle Twins in the case of the libertarian propaganda. Oh my God. You guys God. We, we saw those in the wild in Mississippi. Yep. Oh, they're, they're really bad. They're very, very, very we bad. Uh, yeah, but that's the thing. People should support current affairs. The magazine's fantastic. Those of you who are keeping your jobs during quarantine and not able to go out to bars, this is a great thing to do with some yeah. of your extra money is get one or two quality left-wing media subscriptions. Get your Jacoban, your current affairs, whatever. Yeah. And then, of course, yes, uh, the new book is uh, Bit Tyrants. And this is just out this year. It's very up-to-date. Folks should check it out. Uh, I try to make things, you know, it's economics, but I do try to make it as fun as possible. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason to teach it equations forward. You know, like there's lots, uh, a huge amount that happens in the marketplace that you can understand without calculus. So you can see who's buying who, who controls what part of which market, you know. So I'd encourage people to check that out. That's from Haymarket Books. Go to their uh, website. Please don't use Amazon. Yeah. Or go to your local bookstore and uh, pick up a copy of that. Those are uh, great things people can uh pursue along with listening to this podcast yeah super last thing also uh the day that i met nathan for the first time in person we, he, he was coming from the gym oh yeah you're in new orleans That's yeah right. yeah he was coming from the gym and he was not aware of a giant march like in defense of like like against the like uh um trump's immigration policies and all these other things and i started talking to him because he, he uh kate rude is a friend like a mutual friend of ours and you know we just started talking whatever and he was like you know what's really great and really interesting and he took out a his copy of capitalism versus freedom and started showing parts where he marked and that I'll never forget that. It was such a great thing. And also I, it was the first time I, 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 I first time I met him and he was wearing a t-shirt cause he'd just come from the gym and it had the picture of Bernie Sanders being arrested. <laughs> Chicago. Also, just like lobs out wild takes on Twitter and then just does not read the comments. And it's yeah. like, that is, I am, yeah, he's hurry. He never has his notifications. I'm striving yeah. to be like that. He's just like bomb dropped. Not gonna read any of that shit you replied. I'm like, yes, 
Yeah. Yes, King. Yes. Yeah. That's the kind of discipline that lets you write the insane amount that he does. Like I'm proud of my productivity, but no one can touch that guy. It's absurd. It's because of shit like that. It's because he doesn't look at the petty things that people are saying about me on social media. I don't need to strive to that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for joining us. And you should, uh, you're welcome to come back anytime. Uh, and yeah, appreciate it, brother. Thanks Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good morning, comrades. Yeah, of Woo! course. And you can listen to Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday on WTV FM. You can also listen on, uh, we have our podcast release. This one's probably going to go out as podcast release. It went over time and there was a fair amount of cursing. Is that okay? Uh, and uh, mm. that one's going to get probably, you know, a ton of ton of listens, a ton of downloads. And, uh, you All know, right, like, I share, subscribe. Steve Jobs. I hate him. Oh, I hate him so much. Uh, fuck Steve Jobs, uh, but give to our Patreon. We do money, so there you go. Um, thanks, everybody. Let's y'all bye. Bye. bye.